0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, as we experience yet another lockdown with the Kent coronavirus variant... An international authority on pandemics talks about where this one came from, the risks of a pandemic from a malicious source, and when we can expect this one to end. Plus, if you have a high blood sugar, is it really right to call it pre-diabetes? Last week, as well as Brisbane playing host to a growing coronavirus cluster, it was the location for the World Science Festival. And One of the sessions, which in fact I hosted, was called The Pulse of the Pandemic. As part of that, I recorded an interview with Professor Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota. Michael has researched pandemics for most of his career. I first interviewed him in 1990, when I was a wee boy, making a documentary series on pandemics for Channel 4 UK. Michael and a colleague had elucidated the cause of of the infamous Athenian plague, which was so well described by the Athenian general Thucydides. Michael and his colleagues concluded it was actually a form of toxic shock syndrome. Anyway, Michael has been watching this pandemic closely and was one of the first to warn that this one was going to be bad. Michael Osterholm is director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. And in November was one of incoming President Biden's transition team advising on his pandemic response. He spoke to me from Minneapolis, and where better to start when you're talking to someone who's spent his life studying how pandemics happen than what has to come together for a pandemic to take off?
1: First of all, you have to have an infectious agent that hasn't been in the population for some period of time, meaning at least generations, so that you don't have a large group of people who are immune to the particular pathogen. The second thing you have to have is a readily good means for transmitting it. Most of the pandemic agents that we think of, the viruses in particular, were ones that were transmitted via the respiratory route, meaning that it was actually very easy to move it quickly through large populations. The third thing you had to have is they had a way to move from continent to continent. Even back in the Middle Ages, that happened. And you have that ability to cause serious disease. You now have a pandemic of concern.
0: Where do social and political factors fit in? Because, you know, you certainly had the plague of Athens, you had a siege, you had warfare, you had malnutrition. With the Black Death, you had, again, warfare, environmental disruption associated with sea travel and trade. Just play in social and political factors.
1: In a sense, we've created a modern world that is by far the best mixing vessel we could imagine for a pandemic just take a a look at what the next influenza pandemic could very well represent. Today, we have over 23 billion chickens on the face of the earth to feed the 8 billion people. Over half of all the body weight of birds in this world are chickens. Then you add them being the source of the avian or bird viruses, and you put them close by to pigs, and we have well over 90 million pigs in the world at any one given day to, again, feed the protein needs of the eight billion people. Oftentimes, the chickens and the pigs are co-located in such a way that the bird viruses are inhaled by the pigs, and their lungs are very unique in that they have the receptor sites for the ability to be infected by both bird viruses and human viruses. And so when an influenza virus from a bird and a human get together in the same lung cell, you have the opportunity for a new virus to spin forward to cause a pandemic. That didn't happen even 50 to 100 years ago, that kind of agriculture, that kind of concentrated human population, animal population together. Then you throw in modern transportation. And so in a sense, we've really been grooming the whole world for centuries to become better and better at creating pandemic infectious agents. And then once they're here, moving around the world.
0: And if you add one more factor in, this idea has been circulating with this pandemic, is our ability to manipulate viruses in the lab and through CRISPR to change their genes a lot. And one theory, less likely, is that it escaped from the virology lab of the Institute of Virology in Wuhan, where they were doing what's called gain-of-function studies on coronavirus, maybe two or three years before the pandemic, where they were studying what it would take to turn a coronavirus into a pandemic virus.
1: This has been an issue that I've been very concerned about for some time. I served almost six years on the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity in the United States, a group that was brought together to address just this very issue. And I've been very concerned, even if it was not by intentional means, that we were manipulating infectious agents with the idea of trying to understand what they did or how they did it, without realizing that accidentally you could create that kind of pandemic agent so this is a very serious issue mother nature surely by herself can do a wonderful job of providing us with these dangerous viruses but humans surely can add to it it's something we have to be mindful of and consider that in the future someone could possibly create a virus like this that would be a huge challenge
0: how much do you said by the story of the two Chinese scientists who've been let go from the National Level 4 lab in Canada, who apparently took Hennepa viruses into China, maybe other viruses as well?
1: I don't have any magical source of information or any crystal ball. I just come back to the fact that this is a very important issue. We have to address it and there's no perfect answer. If someone is gonna do something nefarious with infectious agents, we surely could be at the risk of having a major infectious disease problem, including a potential pandemic. If one goes back and looks at the 2001 anthrax attacks in the United States, I have no doubt that the individual who perpetrated that was someone from a high-security U.S. lab who had mental health issues that intentionally moved those bacillus anthracis spores through the mail. And so we have to be mindful that this
0: can happen. Just before we go back to the coronavirus pandemic, what can we do to minimize the chances of that? And some people believe it may have already occurred, it's just not turned into a pandemic yet.
1: This is one of the challenges of modern science and the whole issue of human values. You know, we know that people do nefarious things all the time. What's more challenging now about this issue is it's gotten easier and easier for individuals to do things with infectious agents. We're now doing the kinds of studies, the kinds of of activities in high school microbiology labs that literally just a decade to two decades ago were only done in the most secure of government laboratories around the world. Now, these are not investigations or experiments that are trying to create new infectious agents or change old ones to be more infectious or more deadly. But the point of it is is that the same tool today that can be used for routine science investigation can tomorrow be the same tool that could be used for something nefarious. And we don't have easy answers right now. We just don't.
0: Let's go back to the coronavirus pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. You've suffered mightily from it in the United States. In fact, you've suffered worse from it in the United States than any other country in the world, even allowing for your large population. What do we know about how it got into the United States?
1: Well, I think this virus came into the United States through any number of different sources. Our borders, in a sense, were like a submarine with screen doors. You know, it was more than open to travel from any number of ways. As we know from studies that were done, of the viruses first found in the United States, it's very likely it didn't come across the Pacific in any meaningful way in terms of, of entering the country here, but rather actually came via China through Europe and came in on our East Coast. There were a number of points of entry where this virus arrived and it was here long before we recognized just how much transmission had occurred in any number of different areas in the country. We really were flying blind from January well into the middle to the end of March before we really got an understanding of just how much SARS-CoV-2 activity was in the country.
0: Just take us through how you got to the situation you got to with an appalling pandemic, with an appalling and scary number of deaths. Well,
1: I think, first of all, you have to uh, acknowledge the fact that this disease got politicized very early. It was an issue of where we had a federal government telling the public everything was okay, we had it under control, and there wasn't a sense of urgency. I can speak to that firsthand because our center, and I specifically, put out a document on January 20th of 2000 saying this was going to be the next pandemic. Wake up, America, and get ready to prepare for this. That was met pretty much with a thundering deafness. No one really wanted to hear about it. In fact, more often than not, I just got criticism. I wrote an op-ed piece in the February 22nd issue of the New York Times last year, in which I repeated not only the call for America to understand the shortcomings, that we weren't ready for this at all, but here we had the World Health Organization that still did not declare it as a pandemic till March 11th, still almost another three weeks later. And so I think the world was really asleep at the switch as to what this pandemic could be or what it would be. And then once that happened, We just got further and further behind. And I think there was this part of America that also said, you know, we're independent souls. We're going to do what we want to do. And we had a very, very poor response. Now, I have to acknowledge that we may have given up, you might say, as a public in doing the things that could help reduce the transmission. And meanwhile, other countries in the world, such as in Asia and even in Europe, after their initial problems really clamped down. But look today, particularly in Europe. Europe is really no different than the U.S. overall, where they're at now. The only part of the world that has continued to sustain what I would consider important control of this infection has been those countries in Asia and, of course, in New Zealand and Australia, where we see it's not just authoritarian governments, but democracies can also control this. Now, people will argue, well, Australia and New Zealand are islands. Well, they had many introductions of the virus, and that could just as easily have taken off, and it didn't. So I think that one of the lessons learned was is that if you, from the very beginning, had a plan how you were going to attack this virus, its early identification, the contact tracing, the quarantine, the isolation, and the willingness to do that, you could virtually control this virus infection. I just look no further than New Zealand and and Minnesota, my home state. We have roughly the same size population. Minnesota has had almost 6,500 deaths. New Zealand has had 25. Now, is their science that much better? Not really, but their will to do something about it was. And I think that's a lesson learned not just for this pandemic, but for pandemics in the future, too.
0: And just going back to that original discussion we had about the origins of pandemics and the multifactorial nature of them, I mean, America didn't do that well with the 1918 pandemic either. And Isn't this individualism that doesn't want to take community action, that individual freedom trumps, to use an unfortunate term, community action?
1: I think that's surely a big part of it. Also, I fear that there's a certain arrogance by us in this country that because we are the United States of America, we can't be impacted by an infectious agent like this. There was this assumption that we'll handle it. We have the most modern medical system in the world, or so we declare. You know, we think of ourselves as having the ultimate public health community, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institutes of Health, worldwide recognized experts in these diseases. But what we didn't have was a real understanding of what this virus could do and would do in our communities. And as such, we weren't prepared. Our hospitals were not prepared. We were overrun with cases. We weren't prepared to deal with the social and racial inequality issues that furthered the transmission of this virus because of the kind of living conditions that many of these populations had to live in, crowding and a lack of access to healthcare. So I think that as a whole, this pandemic really shined a light on all the deficiencies of our country from a, what I would call both a humanitarian standpoint and a strategic standpoint of public health response. And we we need to learn
0: from that, surely. When you look forward to the next 12 months, you've got new variants emerging almost spontaneously around the world, not necessarily, some of them are spreading, but some of them are just occurring and very similar mutations because of the the environmental pressure of immunocompromised people, even partial immunisation is the other issue that's going on. But you have got vaccination unfolding. What do you predict, given your predictions have been pretty accurate in the past, globally for this pandemic over the next 12 months?
1: Well, let me just say I have one disclosure I really need to make for this presentation, and that is I know less about this virus today, I think, than I did six months ago. So let me, with some real humility, tell you what I think very well will happen or might happen. Number one, you know, we've been dealing with this now really for almost 14 months as a world population, this pandemic, but we've only been dealing with the variants for three months. We went along for many months assuming that these variants or these mutated viruses had no real significance as mutations just the fact that we could identify them as being different. It was only really in early November we really understood that, wait a minute, these variants have other properties that are really significant. One, some of them are able to cause much more severe disease. Number two, is they're also much more infectious. Or number three, is that they actually can evade the immune protection from vaccine or from natural infection immunity, and once we realized that, and we labeled these variants of concern, we begin to understand this was a whole new ball game, and that the variants were going to drive this pandemic in a way we had not appreciated. I just mentioned what's happening here in Minnesota right now. Well, it's beginning to happen around the whole entire United States, and that is what happened in Europe starting in November, December with B one one seven, the UK variant, that is both much more infectious and causes more serious illness. And even though we have seen this great reduction in cases in the United States since January and people feeling like, aha, we're over the hump, we're just on our way to vaccine, in fact, that's not the case at all. We're now about to watch a B117 surge occur in this country that could be quite devastating, even with the number of people who have been vaccinated and the number of people who have already been infected and have some protection. Now, fortunately, B117 doesn't evade the immune protection of the vaccine or previous infection, but just the sheer transmission issues are huge. So, we're going to see another wave of illness here as we go into what will obviously be the months of the summer where we will have much more vaccine but now you ask me where we're going with this i don't know because one of the things that we're confronted with are these other variants the p1 for example from brazil or the p1135 from south africa where there we're seeing the variants that actually can evade immune protection from vaccine and from previous infection. What's happening in Brazil right now with P1 is just devastating. Not only the city of Manaus, which was the original location where we saw a big second wave of infection due to this new variant, which actually meant people were previously infected got infected again. We're now seeing it in Sao Paulo. We're seeing it in Rio de Janeiro. So whatever happens with these variants could determine how well our vaccines or previous protection from having been infected will actually work. And guess what? We are concentrating on getting the vaccine to those in the high income countries right now. Vaccine nationalism at its worst. And at the point right now, we may, may be able to vaccinate up to 20% of the low and middle income country populations over the course of the next year. Well, guess what that means? That means that the transmission of the virus is gonna continue full throttle in those countries. That's where the new variants are gonna spring forth from. And when they do, they very well could challenge how well our vaccines in the high-income countries work. So I would like to think that's not gonna happen, but you know, I have to say at this point, everything points to the fact that we are going to expect to see these new variants come forward. So we have to be very, very leery of assuming just because we have the vaccines we do now that we're done, we're over it. We may not be at all.
0: Michael Hosterholm, while I've got you in an optimistic mood, tell me where you think the next pandemic is going to come from and when.
1: I don't know. And, and I think that's part of the challenge we have today. Remember the last influenza pandemic in 2009 originated in Mexico after everyone assumed it would start in Asia. You know, we're maybe not as surprised that we had the coronavirus pandemic start in China because in fact, the concern had been there for some time about coronaviruses in animal populations in Asia. But you know, tomorrow, it could start anywhere in the world for influenza and another coronavirus could surely pop up just like in the middle east where mers middle eastern respiratory syndrome suddenly popped up in 2012. so i think it really is a global surveillance we need any day anywhere any place it could happen our job is going to be early recognition and doing the most we can to try to contain it if possible and if not What else are we going to do than to try to protect the world?
0: Professor Michael Osterholm is Director of the Centre for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, Minneapolis. And he was speaking to me at the World Science Festival in Brisbane last Saturday, which is why I'm now in lockdown. This is Iron's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. There are two conditions that doctors are told to look out for if they want to prevent diabetes in their patients. One is the metabolic syndrome, which involves a few things, such as abnormal blood fats, a larger-than-advisable waist circumference, and high blood pressure. It also puts you at risk of a heart attack and stroke. The second condition is much simpler. It involves a high blood sugar and signs in the blood that your sugar has been high for a while. It's called pre-diabetes because it's thought to lead to diabetes unless you do something about it. But recent research suggests that in some people, pre-diabetes isn't prediabetes at all. Liz Selvin is Professor of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health.
2: The metabolic syndrome is really a cluster of risk factors, whereas prediabetes is defined solely on the basis of hyperglycemia. So it's really a categorization of people who are not yet diabetic, they don't quite meet the criteria for diabetes, they're just below that criteria but they might be at, at risk for the development of diabetes.
0: And so the criteria are your blood sugar level when you're fasting and something called your HbO1c or glycated hemoglobin, which is a measure of your blood glucose control over the last three months. Exactly, correct. And I think it's the same in America as it is in Australia. If you've got a a one c over 6.5% and a fasting blood sugar over 7, then that's classified as diabetes.
2: Correct. That's the same in the U.S. and Australia.
0: So before you did the study, what evidence was there? Because you're looking at whether or not the term prediabetes deserves the term prediabetes. What did we know about the track from a high fasting blood sugar that didn't qualify as diabetes or a high average HbA1c?
2: We have quite a bit of data on prediabetes in middle-aged adults, and work from our group and other groups have shown that prediabetes in middle-aged is a pretty good predictor if you're going to develop diabetes, and it's also related to other outcomes like the development of heart disease, the development of kidney disease, and death. So in middle-aged, prediabetes is a high-risk condition, and there's also randomized clinical trials that show in middle-aged adults that if you lower blood glucose, goes in people with prediabetes, that that can prevent the progression to diabetes. So the fundamental thing is that we really have a lot of evidence in middle-aged adults, but very little evidence in older adults, which was part of the impetus for our research.
0: So what did you do in this study?
2: We followed older adults who had prediabetes and looked at who developed diabetes. And these participants attended a clinic visit when they were 71 to 90 years of age, a general community-based sample. And then we followed them over time to see who died, who was hospitalized, many other outcomes. And then they came back for a second clinic visit six years later, where we re-measured their glucose and all the other parameters to see who developed diabetes among those people who were pre-diabetes initially.
0: Okay, so you measured all these factors, particularly their fasting blood sugar and their HbA1c. So you had a group within that group who had what would be classified as pre-diabetes. And just for the sake of the audience, in case they, they know blood sugar levels, that's a blood sugar level between 5.6 and, say, 6.9 millimoles, which is a different measure from the one you use, and an HbA1c between 5.7% and 6.4%. So you had a group that were classified as pre-diabetic. What happened to them?
2: We found that at the initial study visit, prediabetes was very common. Depending on which definition you used, 25% to 75% of people of this older adult population would be classified as having prediabetes. But then when we looked to see what happened to those people over time, we found that that category of prediabetes wasn't very prognostic in this population, meaning that very few people in this group went on to develop diabetes. So many more people who were initially pre-diabetic actually died or returned to normal glucose levels. That was actually the most common outcome, was that people with pre-diabetes actually returned to normal glucose by the time of the six-year follow-up visit. So only 10% of those people with pre-diabetes developed diabetes, whereas 40% returned to normal glucose levels.
0: And did they have any special intervention along the way that might have differentiated them?
2: No, so this is just a community-based, free-living group of individuals, so no intervention whatsoever. We're just watching them to see what happens over time.
0: So it wasn't a good predictor of type 2 diabetes if you were over 70. Why would it be different from middle age?
2: I think we know that diabetes is a very heterogeneous condition.
0: What does that actually mean, heterogeneous?
2: Well, there's certainly different underlying causes for diabetes and that I think in younger individuals, we see a much more severe condition. It often is very hereditary. Family history becomes very important for younger onset type 2 diabetes, meaning in middle aged, And those people have very severe outcomes and are a very high risk group. Whereas in older adults, I think we're actually seeing a different underlying pathophysiology. We're seeing that the pancreas is just not functioning as well as it used to. It's producing less insulin. We're seeing some cells that are resistant to the effects of insulin that's just occurring as people age. And it's literally not the same underlying physiology. It's not the same diabetes that we see in middle-aged adults.
0: So the thing that confuses me slightly about this study is you had a very high proportion with prediabetes diabetes going in, a high proportion reverted to that they wouldn't have qualified as pre-diabetic. Why did you have such a high proportion to begin with and presumably a lower proportion five years in? Surely the proportion should have stayed about the same. Did you have new people developing high fasting blood sugars?
2: So we're seeing a lot of switching over, right? That it's not this stable condition, I think, is what you're describing. So is that a lot of people with prediabetes at the first visit, lots of people with prediabetes at the follow-up visit, not necessarily the same people. They're moving across these categories. It's not this stable diagnosis,
0: so to speak. So the good news there is that it could be tractable to change.
2: Absolutely. I think that's that's absolutely the case. We know that lifestyle changes and eating healthy, even modest weight loss can lower your glucose levels. So I think that's very much the good news, that lifestyle modifications, eating healthy, losing weight, those are things that can really help from a metabolic standpoint.
0: Now, There's a bit of an epidemic of uh, general practitioners, primary care physicians doing fasting blood sugars and HbA1c's. They're encouraged to do so because they say that type 2 diabetes is underdiagnosed. Diagnosed in the community. But in fact, from this study, in a 70 year old, you could be over diagnosing and getting over concerned. Is there a case still? to check fasting blood sugars if you're over 70?
2: I think monitoring is good, but I think what we see is that this category of prediabetes, it should not be a priority in much older adults. I think you know, the priority should be other comorbidities, other major risk factors for mortality, things that are affecting quality of life. And that you know, sort of a slightly elevated glucose level is simply not a priority for most older adults.
0: Whereas you might look for it more closely in somebody who's 45 or 55. Exactly. And where does this leave the metabolic syndrome? So just to explain, this is where you've got abnormal blood fats, your triglycerides are high, your HDL is low, you've got a fat tummy, your blood pressure is up, and you're fasting and you're tending towards pre-diabetes. Where does it leave the metabolic syndrome?
2: You know, we didn't specifically look at metabolic syndrome in older adults, but I think it's the same kind of clustering of risk factors that probably have a lot more meaning in middle aged And in older adults, we're much more focused on underlying comorbidities, whether you have a history of cardiovascular disease, you know, whether you have hypertension, whether you have major underlying comorbidities, physical dysfunction. I think this research really emphasizes that we should be focusing on those underlying conditions rather than just mildly elevated glucose levels in isolation
0: it's old-fashioned but focus on the whole person
2: exactly I think that's absolutely correct
0: Liz Selvin thank you very much for joining us
2: thank you so much for having me this was wonderful
0: Liz Selvin is professor of epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health now don't miss next week's health report it's documentary maker Dasha Ross's search for some missing hours in her life now I haven't told you yet about the trigger for my TGA Before landing in emergency, I'd spent the afternoon in bed with my lover and he must have been so good he literally blew my brains. Sadly, I don't remember any of it. So who knew that sex could be dangerous? The day I lost my mind with Dasha Ross next week on The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. Bye till then.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.